I don't believe any of that had anything to do with the very simple story of a tabloid newspaper with a source close to the couple pursuing a natural story of interest for their audience. But I do feel in some corners there was a sense of disillusionment that Jeff, who had held everyone to such high standards, you know, had brought this upon himself and upon Amazon. You know, that sense of disillusionment might have faded, but I do think it was real. And I think that this very much was an Amazon story with an impact for Amazon. The inside story of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's battle with the National Enquirer is just one of the revelations in Amazon Unbound, a new book by Brad Stone, who previously wrote The Everything Store, a best-selling title about the rise of the tech giant. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. On this episode of Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon, my conversation with Brad Stone about his new book and the future of the company. Brad Stone is the author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire, out May 11th, published by Simon & Schuster. He's also the senior executive editor of the Bloomberg News Global Tech Team. Brad, it's great to talk with you. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having me. The biggest challenge I had in reading an embargoed copy of your new book, Amazon Unbound, is that I finished it too quickly. I read it and finished it about three weeks ago, and so I had to go back last night and refresh my memory with all the dog ears. There was one point when I was reading this book at the kitchen table, yelling out sentences to my wife who responded with expressions of astonishment. And so I have to tell you, for business and tech and Amazon people, and really anybody out there who wants to read a a good story, I I highly recommend your book. And and Brad, I don't speak of books like that often. This This is a good one. Thank you, Todd. Well, you know, I mean, that's great for any author to hear, but it to me, it's particularly meaningful coming from you because you guys at GeekWire, and, and GeekWire is all over this book, by the way, you probably saw, but you know, we're, we're a small fraternity of brave technology reporters with the temerity to cover you know, the most secretive company in the world. And this stuff is hard. You go down the rabbit hole and you spend your life trying to just chisel out the stories and the facts that it can enliven a story about one of the world's most powerful companies. So th- thank you for that. So let me give you my big picture takeaway, and then I want to ask you what you learned about Amazon in the process of reporting and writing this book. I was struck reading Amazon Unbound about the degree to which Jeff Bezos has continued to serve as the master architect of this company. Alexa, HQ2, search advertising, the pandemic response, on and on while simultaneously succumbing to personal indulgences that put the company at risk, even more, I think, than many people realized, and frankly, more than many people inside the company realized, yet maintaining the fierce loyalty of his top executives and leading the company to greater and greater size and success. That was my big picture takeaway. What are going to be the things that you remember from the process of reporting this book about Amazon? Todd, that's a great distillation. I w- I almost wish I could go back and just add that bit right there to the to the end. Um, <laughs> I you know so in some ways, right? It's it's I'm still so close to it. Um, what did I learn? I'm going to take the three sections of the book separately. You know, the first section is invention, and I think that particularly in the in the media, we are really so focused on the way that Amazon exerts its dominance and can inflict pain on on smaller companies, on the partners and, and competitors in its orbit. 
that we don't often give it as much credit, perhaps, as it deserves for the things that have sprung, you know, mostly fully formed from the brain of Jeff Bezos. And so to tell the Alexa story, to tell the Amazon Go story, um, the way in which Jeff has revived the Washington Post, the foresight that he had in um, bringing uh, video into prime um, and and pushing Amazon into Hollywood at a time when a lot of executives did not understand why it would go and create TV shows and movies. I think you know the telling that story in the first third of the book, you know, was eye opening for me. He he Jeff likes to call himself an inventor, and you have to give him credit, right? He he is. The second part of the book is called Leverage, and it's about the older businesses and the way in which Amazon, you know, has has created a global marketplace, has created a transportation division that now drives our roads and uh, flies in the air and puts trucks on interstate highways, and the speed at which they've done that, and sometimes the recklessness with which they've done it. It's almost like you know we we think about Facebook as move fast and break things, and. It, this is a tech company thing. Amazon, very decentralized. Everyone's moving quickly. They have their goals. They have to meet them. Um, their careers depend on it. And the the unintended consequences of the global expansion of marketplace, of, of a fissured contractor model for uh, Amazon logistics, the, the drivers you know who drive those vans are not employees, but they're expected to act like them. The consequences in some cases, the deaths, the houses that burned down because of, you know, products that came from fly-by-night manufacturers. That surprised me, right, that there was a cost to Amazon's expansion. I think that's in part two. And then part three is invincibility. And I talk about HQ2 and I talk about Jeff's personal saga and the antitrust stuff and the pandemic. And I think you you captured it well, Todd. I mean, the, the way in which some of Jeff's personal whims drove some of these decisions um, and his transformation and his the opening of his eyes to a larger world and his personal interests and his personal life. When all these things were happening, when HQ2 was happening and when the National Enquirer stuff was happening, you know, none of us sort of wanted to believe the worst about that. But as I dove into it, I think, you know, it's true that Amazon did a lot of these things because of where Jeff was in his life. And that did surprise me. A specific example that really stands out of Amazon appearing to accommodate Jeff Bezos's whims was the helipad, the helipads in New York and Virginia. Lauren Sanchez, Jeff Bezos's girlfriend, is a helicopter pilot. Amazon, we should say for the record, as you've reported, Brad, says, wait a second, no, that's very useful for accepting dignitaries. <laughs> that made, that, that, sorry, that, made, that makes no sense, right? You can't, do, do they even say that with a straight face? I don't know, because I think that might have been emailed to me, but it, that doesn't make any sense. So let me just say this, to paraphrase someone else, uh, helipads on a building are not the Amazon I know. Right. <laughs> By the way, Todd, it wasn't just that Lauren Sanchez is a helicopter pilot. This is a, 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 a you know a scoop in the book, and it was in the Business Week excerpts. Jeff was taking hel- helicopter flying lessons, and he personally bought at least one brand new Bell Textron helicopter, which shows up on the on the records of his one of his personal companies. I think I found. I think it's Poplar Glen. And then at the same time, a brand new Bell helicopter shows up in uh, the records of Lauren Sanchez's personal 
company. I don't, I don't know for a fact that Jeff bought that for her, but they're they're basically similar helicopters, almost twin helicopters that show up at the same time as Amazon out of nowhere makes a very polarizing request to put these helipads on the new headquarters in Long Island City and Northern Virginia. And this seems trivial. People might be saying, well, why do you care about this? It's ridiculous. But if you remember, this was incredibly polarizing in the battle in, in Queens. And, you know, there was a cover on the New York Post of Jeff hanging out off a helicopter laughing. <laughs> and it was one of the things that started, you know, the, the big um, the big reaction against Amazon's presence. So it did have an impact. The other thing that struck me just in terms of scoops, as you said, new things that I learned that further illuminated stories I thought I knew, the Seattle employment cap, when Seattle and Amazon were at odds over the taxes that the city council was proposing, there was always a suspicion that there had been an internal mandate by someone to no longer grow in Seattle. And you report specifically that Jeff Bezos himself ordered a cap of 50,000 people in Seattle, which then led to them expanding in Bellevue and elsewhere. I think they may, may have now lifted that and started to exceed it a little bit. But what did that teach you or show you about the degree to which Bezos was involved in the nitty gritty details? I mean, that's local. Totally. I mean, that says, I'm glad that you noticed that. Um, there, it says a lot, a couple of things about Amazon. One, you know, that he really was, you know, paying such close attention to the battle over the head tax, to the changing the dynamic of the Seattle City Council, and maybe even to the intangible shift of sentiment against Amazon in the Seattle community. And then he and then he passes this edict to, to HR, to recruiting, to John Schottler at Amazon um, of the 50,000 seat cap. And it's all, that's also very Amazon-like because that edict is so disruptive to the plans that they have to, to build in um, – in uh, the Denny Triangle and South Lake Union, all you know, they have to suspend construction on, on a couple of those buildings. And he basically, with this one edict, hands Schottler and the and the Amazon real estate team a huge challenge. Right, it throws all their plans into chaos. And you know, at the same time, a couple months later, that they close down HQ2 in Long Island City, and suddenly they are they are scrambling to figure out where does the next phase of Amazon growth go. And a lot of what we're seeing now in Bellevue. Um, in Northern Virginia, and in all these satellite offices in Manhattan and elsewhere is is because of that. Another insight that I took away was your reporting on the use of third-party sales data by Amazon's private label brands. And we have to acknowledge this has been plowed before. There are others, as you do in the book, acknowledge that this has been a fruitful area for reporting in the past. But I think, Brad, you got some interesting tidbits. And I think collectively, the reporting community on Amazon, the Wall Street Journal, yourself and others have kind of got them dead to rights on them at this point. And the anecdote that stood out to me was the source unnamed, but clearly credible that you spoke with, who is a former manager on Amazon's private label brands. And she shared a, a spreadsheet with you that showed individual third-party seller data, units, average selling price, and profitability. She had assumed that these things were off limits. And then she said she learned it was sort of a wink-wink. Do you expect at this point somebody to finally crack down on this? I mean, it, it seems like at this point, there's no question what's been going on, whether or not it's the policy to have a firewall. Right. And so let's just be clear specifically what we're talking about is the yeah. question of did, did Amazon... Uh, employees 
you know, look at the data from third-party sellers to craft the the emerging private label strategy, you know, the the next products that should be called Amazon Basics or Amazon Essentials or whatever crazy name they come up with next for the the private label crackers or toilet paper or toothbrushes or whatever. Happy belly. Right. And the answer unequivocally from the years, you know, I would say maybe 2016 to 2018 is yes, in a very Amazon-like way, these were decentralized teams given big goals and the policy was there that they shouldn't open the cookie jar and, and look at what's selling elsewhere and should they duplicate it. But the protections weren't and they did. And I don't know why Amazon is maybe incapable right now of just admitting that, but the evidence is is clear. I'm not so sure. I, I think that they've put a stop to it, that they realize that it smells bad and it's a legal liability and they've cleaned it up. But this is what I was talking about before, kind of the decentralized move fast and and and, and break things, be successful, we'll clean it up later, has had repercussions. And yeah, I think Amazon eventually will be penalized for it. I do think they have a good argument that, you know, private label is a big part of retail and other larger companies like Walmart do it. You know, Costco is a private label is a huge part of its business. So it's a little more difficult to make the argument that Amazon should be restricted But I think that they certainly violated their own policy back when they were building a private label business. I was also struck by your approach in approaching third-party sellers to find out what was really going on. You specifically chose not to go to critics, to known critics, but to fans, supporters, people Amazon had quoted and cited in the past in the world of third-party sellers to get an understanding for how Amazon's relationship with them has evolved. One of them, for example, Paul Saunders, was very reluctant to talk to you. Uh, and Wendell Morris was another example. What did you learn from them about how Amazon's approach to third-party sellers has evolved and changed? Right. I think we we should start by recognizing that Amazon has created a lot of opportunity. You know, one of the trends right now in the third-party seller world is is big companies rolling up a lot of Amazon brands, basically buying small sellers, buying companies, and aggregating all their products. So they wouldn't be doing that, right, if there wasn't a lot of opportunity on Amazon. But, you know, as we both know from talking to sellers, boy, there's a lot of unhappiness out there. And I thought there will be other books about the third-party seller community. I want to touch on this. What's a... What's the right way to do it? You know, you can't really take a survey. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to gauge the true sentiment. So I set out a goal for myself. I'm going to go to Amazon's allies. I'm going to I'm going to call up every seller who's been mentioned in Jeff Bezos's shareholder letter over the past basically 10 years and find out are they still happy with Amazon? And I I went through every every letter like Wendell Morris and yoga mats. And um, there was another guy, uh, Stephen Arstol, who who sells stand-up paddle boards. And I called him and remarkably, they were all embittered with Amazon. They're, they had shifted their businesses off of the Amazon marketplace. You mentioned um, Paul. He uh, was not mentioned in a shareholder letter, but he had testified on Amazon's behalf a couple of times. He's a former Marine um, who sells uh, luxury bedsheets. He had turned, and he had um, he had w- he had gone to Seattle a couple of times and presented to the marketplace team and complained about um, you know being supplanted in in search results and finding it more expensive to advertise on the site and fraud and counterfeits and felt like his needs were unaddressed. So the lesson to me was you know the the marketplace is a kind of brutal capitalist frontier. 
Things change all the time. And this idea that Amazon tries to summon in its advertising, you know, that it's the mom and pop shop who's turning on the lights in the morning in an a old woodworking shop to get to work, you know, building their, their lives and their fortunes on Amazon. It's a little unrealistic, right? I mean, this is, this is a globalized marketplace where the playing field is really tilted towards, towards overseas sellers and in particular Chinese sellers who are, you know, who can, who can undercut brands on price and are closer to their factories and don't pay as much taxes. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of unhappiness with how the marketplace has developed. What are the other specifics that you heard in terms of how third-party sellers are not content? It's going back to, to what we, we, we talked about with private brands and, and with transportation. They kind of, you know, in around 2014, 2015, they saw the rise of Wish.com and Alibaba Express and this idea that marketplaces were becoming global and that there were a lot of sellers, particularly in China, um, who could offer lower prices. And Bezos looks at, at Peter Farisee and Sebastian Gunningham, who are leading the marketplace effort, and it basically says, you're, you know, it's a sort of like a Corleone nod, right, in The Godfather. You're, you know, just you're on this, right? And what that meant was he wanted Amazon. He didn't want Amazon to be supplanted as the mar- as the global marketplace of of choice. And that if if the world is opening up um, to globalized e-commerce, then Amazon needs to be there. And they basically set a goal of bringing in hundreds of thousands of sellers. They removed all frictions from the sign-up process, so there was no vetting. There was basically an onslaught of Chinese sellers. And the repercussions were severe, right? I mean, it became much harder to compete. It became impossible for a lot of small entrepreneurs to build businesses. The the fraud in the shenanigans in terms of the review process and um, people taking each other's images, you're, you know, you're probably familiar with a lot of this, um, became a major complaint. Other complaints are the rising fees, the cost of advertising. The the search engine on Amazon has moved to algorithmic and algorithmically organized selection of the best products, it's completely moved to pay to play over the past few years. And Amazon has tapped a remarkable new revenue stream because of that. But it means that the cost of selling on Amazon is much harder. It's almost moved from, you know, a a very disruptive 15 to 20% fee to the kind of keystone pricing that, that brands experience in in offline stores where you're paying 50% to Amazon for the right to sell there. So there's a lot of, I think, disgruntlement with how how the, um, uh, how the marketplace is shaped up. But look, perhaps this might open up an opportunity for a competitor to come along. And that is how the internet works. Um, you know, Am- Amazon itself has been the disruptor. And now perhaps if this disgruntlement is real, it might get disrupted. Oh, interesting. I want to circle back on that, but I do want to point out that you write in the book, Amazon knew about these problems, but disguised them with its unrelenting corporate communications machine, which insisted that the company was a friend to entrepreneurs, including that ad that you mentioned. It struck me, I was actually last night looking back at the Everything Store, your first book about Amazon. And one of the tidbits there was that Amazon, at the time at least, professed to take complaints and criticism as a gift as a moment of free market research and customer research that they could use to improve themselves. My impression in reading Amazon Unbound is that that's changed, that Amazon 
perhaps now sees complaints as a reason to push back rather than to listen. I realize this is nuanced and it's case by case, but Mm -hmm. am I off base with that? I, I might slightly disagree. I would put it this way. Because we have seen, you know, okay, so the the opening up of the marketplace to international sellers created a whole bunch of problems that should have been anticipated. Counterfeits, fraud, and dangerous products being being the chief among them. And over the past few years, we have seen, um, you know, Amazon try in a very Amazon-like way with technology and systems rather than people uh, and time uh, to address these. And, and they have been somewhat effective. So like the Project Zero, you know, they I'm, let's not, I won't try to do their PR for them, but there have been systems put in place to, ad- to clean up the marketplace. I, I think they are listening. I suspect that they really, they have created a monster that is hard to tame. And, you know, when you think about the reality of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sellers pouring into this marketplace, the competition for clicks, um, for search engine placement, for re- reviews, and the fa- and the and the fact the the fact of life on the internet, there w- there will always be a vast and clever population of people that are trying to thwart the system. This is the thorn in the side of all technology companies, and you can see it every day when you look at Amazon search results and and when you buy on Amazon, when you're a customer, you know the quality is sometimes not that high. The brands have bizarre names; they seem like sort of fly by night operations. So I don't think it's that they're not listening. You can almost hear in your voice, Todd, Jeff Bezos, like talking talking to Doug Harrington, you know, who now oversees the whole retail business, and saying, "Why haven't we fixed this?" Right, the question mark emails that must go out about this stuff. I truly think they are listening and they have created a remarkably successful business. The marketplace right now is is dominant. It's responsible for most of Amazon's retail sales. I think that the problems are really pernicious and that they're hard to fix. You mentioned the question mark emails. That of course is the Amazon tradition, Jeff Bezos's tradition of simply forwarding a message that's been sent to his public address that's a complaint. What I liked in this book was right. there was one moment where it was not only the question mark, but there was a WTF attached yes. to that question mark. Yeah, no, out. I learned that there there's a little bit of a hierarchy of messages that you might get uh, from Jeff, some of them conveying a little bit more urgency than others. Brad, I want to go back to what you said a question ago, and that was that these issues potentially could open up the door for competitors. Do you see legitimate competitors out there? When you said that, I have to say Shopify Right. popped immediately to mind. But I'm wondering, what do you see in terms of the landscape? And is Amazon vulnerable in any specific area? For brands, there is um, some pressure on brands right now to go to, to to leave Amazon to protect their brands, to, to protect their prices. And Shopify has benefited enormously from that. On the on the marketplace side, eBay is is seems really a ever more feeble competitor. Um, Walmart is having um, some traction, but I would just say, yeah, what I said before, it's like, you know, the the fees have gone up, the cost of advertising on Amazon ha- has gone up, the quality seems like it's inconsistent, the counterfeiting and and the competitive brutality on Amazon is very real, and when that happens, the the environment for competitors tends to get stronger more fertile. And that's the thing that I think sometimes the antitrust crusaders maybe underestimate a little bit about the internet, which is that it does tend to be self-correcting. And dominance isn't always 
you know, established and uh, pervasive. And you just wonder what the kinds of complaints, um, you know, that we're hearing about the Amazon marketplace, uh, whether whether competitors might rise. There's much of substance in the book, clearly. And a couple of my favorite lines, just as an example, you tell the story of the HQ2 search, you tell the story of the JEDI process. This is the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Initiative that Amazon lost to Microsoft. And, and one of my favorite lines from the book is you say, uh, because this Amazon alleges was influenced by President Trump and his personal animus against Jeff Bezos. You said, here finally was the true purchase price of the Washington Post in the end. It likely cost Amazon $10 billion. I put an exclamation point by that. And yet we have to acknowledge that, um, you know, it's right now it's possible that the Pentagon just cancels the whole thing because, you know, subsequent to me, you know, writing that sentence and finishing the book, a judge has allowed uh, the process to move forward. And look, I mean, it's it's undeniable. I think it's it, well, it's it's pretty self evident that Trump did put his fingers on the scale a little bit, uh, motivated by enmity towards Jeff and the Washington Post. You also write that the true lesson of HQ two was that Amazon was getting perilously close to invincible, and I think this is one of the takeaways that influenced my overall impressions of the book in that all of these missteps along the way didn't hurt. No, no. Yeah. When you think about how public that process is and Amazon will bitterly dispute this. I don't know. They're so wedded to the idea that there was really nothing wrong with that process. But yeah, when you think about the missteps and the resolution in in Long Island City, and then the fact that we all sort of moved on and forgot about it. And it probably, you know, it's, I'm sure it, didn't prevent many people from signing up for Prime or continuing to shop. And so that sort of influenced me when I was thinking about the theme for that section to call it invincibility. Because when you think about the remarkable things the company has been through and survived over the past few years, it has really always just emerged stronger. You're listening to Day 2, GeekWire's podcast about everything Amazon. We invite you to subscribe, rate, and review Day 2 in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Coming up, our conversation with Brad Stone continues with inside details on Jeff Bezos's tabloid tussle. A lot of those unexpected complications come in the chapter that you call complexifiers, which takes its name from an unexpected word that Jeff Bezos used in his Medium post that successfully diffused the National Enquirer by basically falling on his sword. That chapter, I have to tell you, I so my father-in-law visited and I'm I'm visiting with my dad and my family now. I let them check out the book and I said just just read the chapter called uh, Complexifiers and you'll get a sense for it. This is some inside stuff. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, my two takeaways were there is no question that Lauren Sanchez's brother was the person who tipped off and informed the National Enquirer about their relationship. And number two, Jeff Bezos was essentially public with this affair long before anyone knew about it. And in a way that seems almost reckless. Or or naive, or perhaps he didn't care about the public perception. Um, you know, we don't know really what was happening in his personal life in the time. It, it may have been that there was really no reason for him to be secretive about that, but the world didn't know. And he was the wealthiest person in the world at the time. And and that was going to be an object of public interest and tabloid interest. Um, but the one thing you said is, you know, in that Medium post, I mean, I, I hope what I conveyed 
is he created a lot of ambiguity around that episode and he cast it in terms of political motivations, right? He talked about Trump and the enmity towards the Washington Post. He wrapped himself in the Washington Post and he said it was the most important work, the thing that he was going to be proud of when he was 70. Um, He said the Saudi angle was still to be better understood and none of that. I don't think, you know, from the facts that I looked at and I tried to look at everything and talk to everyone, I don't believe any of that had anything to do with the very simple story of a tabloid newspaper with a source close to the couple, Lauren's brother, pursuing a natural story of interest for their audience. And so it was a little, I don't know if it was deliberate. I really don't know. Did they believe that the story was motivated by Trump world and the Saudis, or were they being disingenuous? I, I will give Bezos and, and um, his uh, his allies and, and Gavin DeBecker, his advisor, the benefit of the doubt and, and say that they believe that there might be political motives. And who knows? We might see evidence one day that shows that this was a conspiracy. But for now, for the evidence that we have, most of it suggests this other fact set. In fact, if there was a surprise, it would contradict everything that we know and all the sworn statements and the testimony that it was a much simpler tale and that we don't have to look into the Middle East or into, into Trump world and the shady connections of AMI and catch and kill to, to understand why, why this happened. Is there any dispute, though, that Mohammed bin Salman deposited malware on Jeff Bezos's phone using WhatsApp? Right. There actually is some dispute. So, so okay. uh, and, 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 and he, he might have. Right. There was a, um, a company called FTI Consulting uh, that Gavin DeBecker hired to evaluate Jeff's phone. And what they concluded in a preliminary report was you can't you can't find the spyware. It kind of self-destructs. But when they analyzed the phone, um, they found an increase in the exodus of information from the phone in a very short period of time after MBS had sent Jeff some kind of cryptic WhatsApp text. So it's very possible that the Saudis were playing with their new toy and, and, and deposited some spyware onto Jeff's phone. There are people in the cybercrime community that raised issues with FTI's report. I don't know. All I know is that there's no evidence to suggest that the Saudis, if they had the information about Jeff's personal life, that they tipped off AMI. And the ties between the Saudis and AMI are sort of tenuous to begin with. AMI had pitched the Saudis for some financing and the Saudis had rejected them. So it's a little conspiratorial to think that there was that there were shenanigans going on there now. Again, maybe, maybe it's true, but I will say that the Southern District of New York, uh, the prosecutors there and the FBI who looked into it, basically investigated the claims that Jeff made in his Medium post, dropped the case and did not bring any charges. Doesn't mean they didn't find anything and they're a hard nut to crack, but they didn't find anything worthy, to my knowledge, of pursuit. And I think that that fact set says a lot. Obviously, there are many salacious details and it's easy to get lost in in all of this. And trust me, it's fascinating. It's a great chapter. Did you take anything of substance away from it in terms of Amazon? I mean, is there any way to turn this academic so I can uh, excuse putting it in this uh, highly informative and and substantive podcast, Brad? <laughs> well, there were a cu- there are a couple of things. Uh, you know, one is um, if you recall, Todd um, Jeff at at the end of 2018 has the uh, the investment folks, the finance folks at Amazon, run a process 
to investigate creating a second class of Amazon stock, a sort of remarkable and surprising thing for folks inside Amazon. And the second class of stock would have have less value and fewer voting rights. And, and investors rejected it. It was a very secretive process. Investors rejected it. And later, you know, folks concluded that um, when the news of the divorce came out, that that this was a way for Jeff to hang on to more of his ownership stake uh, in the wake of a costly divorce settlement with McKenzie. And, you know, there were folks that were, you know, sort of disillusioned by that. And I think that, look, I, I you don't know what's in the hearts and minds of, of many of the senior folks who are leaving the company now. It may be that there are better opportunities elsewhere, that they're wealthy, that they feel like there's a changing of, of the guard. But I do feel in some corners, there was a sense of disillusionment that Jeff, who had held everyone to such high standards, you know, had brought this upon himself and upon Amazon. You know, that sense of disillusionment might have faded, but I do think it was real. And I think that this very much was an Amazon story with, with an impact for Amazon. One of the anecdotes that struck me was what Bezos said to his top executives in one of their senior leadership team meetings, their S-team meetings. The simple question, I wonder what unit profitability was in 2017 without advertising. And the scramble that took place to try to answer that question and the insight that came from that answer that changed the approach of the company Tell us that story. Right. Yeah, this is in the chapter about advertising. And it it basically reflects, this moment reflects a kind of fundamental truth to the kind of Bezos method of business building, which is he's really willing to make these long-term bets, to plant these seeds, to wait them out for, for seven or 10 years. But when they get that old, he wants them to produce on their own. You know, if there are kind of fantasy conspiracies about this part of Amazon funding, that part of Amazon subsidizing losses, this really puts it to rest. Because basically, Jeff was looking at the numbers in the 2017 ST meeting, and he realized that the retail business was using advertising as a crutch. And he said, what is the unit profitability without advertising? It creates this whole scramble and on Jeff Wilkie and Doug Harrington's team. Dave Stevenson was the CFO at the time to figure that out, to strip advertising out. And they realized that the, the unit profitability for the retail business, the oldest business at Amazon, far more than 10 years old, was going down. And all of the, the layoffs and the slowdown in, in growth that happens in late 2017 and 2018 is the re result of those very tense meetings and Amazon's increase in profitability and subsequent increase of the stock price is largely a result of that meeting. Again, we're getting back to the Don Corleone nod. This one little thing, this one uncomfortable meeting drove a lot of change. That gets to the surprise twist at the end of your reporting and writing of this book. And we should point out there's an entire chapter on the pandemic and the response there. But of course, at the end of all of this, Jeff Bezos announces earlier this year that he is planning to step down as CEO. He'll still be involved as chairman and involved in the strategy of the company. But Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon Web Services, is taking over in the third quarter as Amazon's CEO. Brad, is the Andy Jassy era at Amazon going to be worthy of your third Amazon book? <laughs> I, You know, after this one, I, I really... <laughs> I don't know if I have it in me, but I was joking on Twitter that, the, you know, the, the everything store was Star Wars and this was Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> and so that suggests that somewhere out there is Return of the Jedi. But look, you, 
I think the question is interesting. Is it the Andy Jassy era? Right. We will see because Jeff is becoming executive chairman. You know, he's talking about staying around to continue to invent. When there's an ST meeting that Jeff is in, does Andy speak last or does Jeff speak last? Right. Does Andy stand up and leave the room as everyone sits in solemn silence or does Jeff? We don't quite know. I mean, my suspicion is that last year when he had to sit in that horrible committee meeting and hear all sorts of bizarre questions, including from Republicans about, uh, you know, suppressing conservative voices, um, you know, that he thought that this is not a way where he wants to spend his time. You know, time is his most valuable resource and he apportions it very strategically. And so I think Andy's going to be doing a lot of the stuff that's not fun, but I really do wonder how far Jeff will go. You ask toward the end of the book, is the world better off with Amazon in it? And I recognize that that may not be answerable. I'm just curious for your take on that question after reporting and writing this book. Yeah. And did you notice how I completely punted on that at the end of the book? Yeah, you totally did. That's why I'm trying to pin you down. It really was something. Because (laughs) let me be completely frank about something that I I think sometimes critics of Amazon uh, don't fess up to. You know, I am a Prime member. I am a Alexa owner. I have to turn, I have to mute my Alexas before conversations like this one so it doesn't perk up when we talk about it. I have Fire TVs. I have a Kindle. I read on a Kindle. Amazon has made my life better, okay? So to say that it has made the world worse would be an act of hypocrisy, I think. And I don't necessarily believe it's true. And it's interesting, and I don't know, let's call it coincidental, that Jeff really chose that question to address in his last shareholder letter, right? He makes an impassioned argument that Amazon has contributed so much more. And I think he is bothered by the critics who view it as extractive. But I do think it's a it's a hard question to answer because... You know, there's so many intangible costs. It's changed the the active warehouse work. It's changed the the compensation for it's it's changed our economic reality. But you know, I think it's partly unanswerable. It's a fact of modern life. It's like the ice <laughs> melting or or winter, right? It's not going away. Amazon's here to stay, and the impact that they have made and other tech companies have made on our world is pervasive. So. You know, if you're going to pin me down, Todd, I would I would say that you know I would probably say that Amazon has has made the world better. Yeah. Why didn't Jeff Bezos sit down for an interview with you? That is a really good question. I, I would say if if we look at the interviews that he has done over the past few years, they have been few and far between. When when they do happen, they have been with a friendly interviewer like his brother, right? Uh, he did he did a high profile interview. I don't think Jeff is really in the mood now to sit down and reflect and answer the uncomfortable questions. Um, so that's that's the most important thing. But, you know, as you recall, he didn't love the Everything Store. And, um, you know, I... Um, I think that um, had a had a played a role, but look, Amazon did cooperate, and and um, you know they they helped me get this book right, and I talked to almost, you know many members of the S team, and I was very happy with the cooperation that I got. What Amazon review rating do you expect Mackenzie Scott to give? <laughs> Amazon Unbound. I don't. I don't. I don't expect one from her. If she's listening, I would welcome one. I. I wanted to send her a book. I. I don't know where to send it. Um, but you know, the one thing, and and she has had a sort of remarkable philanthropic career in just a very short time. Um, but she has done it very privately, and you have to respect that. And um, I. I don't anticipate that we will be hearing from her. Unfortunately, I would like to. 
we should say for people who did not follow this, Mackenzie, then Bezos, now Scott, Jeff Bezos's former wife gave the Everything Store, Brad Stone's first Amazon book, a one-star review yes. on Amazon, yeah. Yeah. which Thanks I for believe remind- resulted Thanks in- for reminding me, uh, Todd. That- <laughs> hey, is, aren't the book sales that you got from that compensation enough for Perhaps. any pain that it, yes. Perhaps. <laughs> Brad, big picture, what would you want people to know about Amazon through your book? And here's how my dad suggested I ask you this question. You know, you go to a cocktail party and somebody says, oh, I read your book. I loved it. And I'm sure as the inquisitive author, you would ask, well, what'd you love about it? And then hope that they would have a substantive response. What would you hope people would say they loved about this book? I hope that people come away saying that they understand Amazon better. And I I do think that there's a conversation that's starting now that we're going to have over the next few years about how to regulate Amazon and whether new antitrust laws should be applied to it. But when I listen to the quality and the level of the conversation and the things that some of the critics say, I don't think they understand the company very well. I don't think they understand the e-commerce or the internet very well or or the very specific and very technical and complex issues that Amazon raises. So I would hope you know, that this book helps to illuminate people and create a better understanding of what this company is, who Jeff Bezos is, how it became so big, how it became so powerful, and to the extent that there are things that it does that need to be curtailed, what should be done about it, what new laws would help, how should the government look at Amazon, and how should it restore some balance of competition in the industries that Amazon does dominate. So if people say they they learn from it, then I'm a happy author. Brad Stone is the author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire, out May 11th. Brad, this was great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to GeekWire's Day 2 podcast. For more episodes, go to geekwire.com slash day two. Subscribe in any podcast app and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with a new episode of day two.